Welcome, beautiful world, to Barbarian Noetics, the podcast dedicated to the human spirit. I'm your host, Conan Tanner. What's up, everybody? I hope you're all doing great today. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, We have a powerful podcast today. And my guest is Terry Fitzpatrick, who is kind enough to join the pod. He is the communications and advocacy director for the international NGO and lobby group Free the Slaves. Free the Slaves was established to campaign against the modern practice of slavery around the world. I've been supporting Free the Slaves for years. I learned about them through reading a book uh, by Kevin Bales called Blood and Earth, Modern Slavery, Ecocide, and the Secret to Saving the World. Kevin Bales had a list of quality NGOs that are really doing serious, practical, pragmatic, effective work to end slavery forever. And um, Free the Slaves just really jumped out at me as a group that was really making a difference, really making it happen, happen, going to hotspots around the world, um, identifying people who are trapped in slavery, freeing them, and also uh, prosecuting traffickers. So I reached out to uh, Free the Slaves in Washington, D.C., and I asked if anyone would um, be willing to come on the podcast, and I was amazed and blessed that the communications and advocacy director himself, Terry Fitzpatrick, Uh, agreed to come on. So he's my guest. I'm very excited to share this podcast with you. Uh, Really quick, before we get into it, I'm just going to read a little bit from the Free the Slaves website, uh, which you can check out. It's freetheslaves.net. So freetheslaves.net is their website. And the mission of Free the Slaves is liberating slaves and changing the conditions that allow slavery to persist. So slavery, this is from the website. Slavery is the result of vulnerability. It flourishes where people cannot meet their basic needs and lack economic opportunity, education, healthcare, and honest government. Slavery, slaves usually come from the poor, the desperate, the uneducated, the marginalized, and the unprotected. People are forced to work without pay, under threat of violence, and they're unable to walk away. Our strategy at Free the Slaves is to reduce people's vulnerability, help those in slavery to freedom, and transform the political, economic, cultural, and social circumstances that make slavery possible. Unfortunately, there are tens of millions of people trapped in various forms of slavery throughout the world today. Um, The estimate is approximately 40 million, probably more. Um, are currently enslaved worldwide, generating $150 billion each year in illicit profits for traffickers. Um, There's a common misconception that the majority of modern slaves are sex slaves. That is not the case. Uh, About 12.5% are trapped in forced prostitution. Um, 37.5% are trapped in forced marriages. 25% of today's slaves are children and about 50% toil in forced labor, labor, slavery, in industries where manual labor is needed, such as farming, ranching, logging, mining, 
fisheries and brick making so it's um it's a it's a brutal reality and it breaks my heart and um but there is hope there are people working and and having success uh to solve this issue um free the slaves their impact uh they have freed over 14,000 people from slavery and this is since their founding in 2000 so over 14,000 people freed from slavery free the slaves has reached over 650,000 people in trafficking hotspots and that's through awareness raising rights education and helping to prevent their enslavement and they've arrested over 300 traffickers which I think is a great number. Um, it's not an easy thing to identify trackers and uh, traffickers and be able to prosecute them. So this is a powerful podcast today. The topic is heavy um, and heartbreaking. However, there is hope. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation with the Communications and Advocacy Director for Free the Slaves, Terry Fitzpatrick. to do it. Happy to take any opportunity anywhere to get this uh, issue before people's eyes because it's, uh, you know, it's a frustrating thing sometimes, but it's a hopeful thing when you hear the message. Absolutely. So I wanted to start off just by asking, um, I wanted our listeners just to find out a little bit about you. Like, um, where did you grow up and how did you become interested in uh, human rights and social justice and how did you get involved in Free the Slaves? Sure. Well, a bit of a story. I um, I was started out as a journalist, and um, I've worked in public radio and done Discovery Channel and History Channel and PBS documentaries, and also then did training for journalists all over the world. And a friend of mine who uh, started Free the Slaves, the communications director, asked me if I would make some videos for the organization. This was about 10 years ago. And as a journalist, we're taught uh, I grew up in Chicago where, like, this is hard scrabble journalism town. My family got multiple newspapers every day. Uh-huh. And the old saying from Chicago, the city news bureau is, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. So, <laughs> I mean, that's a hard scrabble business that I yeah. decided I would get into. And I've always um, felt that I wanted to have a sense of service. Um, my family has labor roots. My grandfather uh, was a famous, famous labor figure in Chicago. And so I, I was going to journalism school, went to the University of Wisconsin, and they told us that we would meet people on the worst day of their life. Something has gone wrong. Their house has burned down. 
child's been killed, there's been an accident, a fire, a disaster of some sort, and we show up, especially the TV types or the radio types with a microphone and put it in your face and say, how do you feel? And if you can't do that and you can't work with people who are in trauma, in situations of uncertain facts by the time you have to go to the air or or go to press, and if you can't do that sometimes in conditions of danger and risk to yourself to go get the story or possibly report it live from where you are, well, then you're not going to go very far in journalism because that's the nature of a lot of the business. And there's, there's very constructive journalism, and not all journalism is chasing ambulances, but you have to do that in this career. And so... I have a, I've seen a lot, and I've had a bit of a thick skin that, um, that I had developed over the years. Mm-hmm. So now again, fa- uh, fast forward to this friend had uh, asked me to do these videos um, with people who had come out of slavery and are now anti-trafficking heroes. And I began to realize that every day was the worst day of their life. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't a one-off thing. And it was relentless. And it went after, you know, traffickers and the people and enslavers go after people's worth and dignity and humanity. They steal that and not just your labor or your wages. Mm-hmm. And that got to me. And I made the shift from journalist to activist. And I've always felt that I could use my skills in journalism when I didn't have to go chase a car crash or do some of those things that journalists have to do as part of their career. Yeah. I've always felt of trying to be constructive and helping to be create conversations and paths forward, part of the dialogue, the civic dialogue. And so I just said this is a great opportunity. This is one of the most important human rights problems of all time. And there's a chance in my time that it might actually come to an end mm-hmm. that There's not a lot of things that you can point to in history that actually come to an end um, that have been around for 5,000 years. And so I I made the switch, and that was about 10 years ago. And so I used my skills as a filmmaker and a journalist and a writer to help tell that story. Um, And then also, since I've covered courts and Congress and other places for many, many years. I also now work on the advocacy uh, activities for Free the Slaves, both at uh, Congress and with the United Nations. So do you travel a bit for the, for the advocacy work? Um, for advocacy, less. Um, for, um, for programming, more. Uh, I mean, I was actually just on the phone with Ghana. I'll be going there to do training of journalists on how to cover um, the problem of child trafficking into cocoa and fishing and gold mining and how to tell that story constructively and not um, sensationalistically. I'll be doing that early next year. And then uh, a few weeks after that, I'm going to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia where we have a conference um, for the leaders of all the anti-trafficking organizations in the world. And we help try to pull the field together in a coordinated effort. And we tend to look for where are the gaps in our methodology? Where can we be stronger? How can we have a stronger collective voice? And how can we achieve something if we're pushing in the right direction in a coordinated way? So uh, it just depends. Uh, My executive director, I'm the communications and advocacy director. Um, My executive director, he gets to go to the the fun meetings in Paris and that sort of thing. I don't get to quite go to those meetings. <laughs> I like I, I like the front lines. I've been to Paris. I but I, I much rather rather go to Accra and to Addis. Yeah, I, that makes sense, and I really respect that. Um, so 
I'm obviously going to be in the in the podcast description. I'm going to be describing a little bit about Free the Slaves, um, but I did want to just get like a your take on the general overview of what exactly Free the Slaves does. And then I wanted to go through, um, there's a really great video on the Free the Slaves home screen that everyone should check out where it breaks down kind of the four-step process by which Free the Slaves uh, first identifies uh, people who have been enslaved and all the way to um, actually frees them and supports them in their life after slavery. Um, so would you mind just kind of briefly describing the, the overall mission of Free the Slaves? Sure. So the the singular contribution, if, if we can say, uh, of free the slaves to the anti-trafficking movement is to not just think about the individual, but to think about the community. So our mission is to liberate the enslaved and change the conditions that allow slavery to persist into modern time. I can hear my – I keep moving my little microphone here. I can hear the getting – so I'll yeah. move that up and down. Yeah. Yeah. See if uh, maybe if you have it above, it might be a little better. Yeah, a little easier there. Yeah. Um, so sorry, it's uh, in my eye line there. But no so, so our mission, as I said, is to think about the individual and the context, the systems that allow that individual to be trapped in this swirl of circumstance mm-hmm. that enslaves them. So we think of our unit of intervention as the community itself not just rescuing or liberating an individual, but changing the reasons that cause that person to become enslaved Mm -hmm. and making sure that once they come out, they don't go back in and nobody else takes their place. Mm -hmm. Because those circumstances affect everyone in their family and in their neighborhood and in their entire village. And so we work at that level to work on system systemic change, the changing of those systems. Mm-hmm. That's the top-line mission of Free the Slaves. Now, we do this in three different ways. We have three areas of activities. One is we work with local community organizers. Uh, we don't just parachute in from the United States and say we're here to help do rescues. All the staffers that work in our frontline country programs are from those countries, cool. and we help co-implement the projects that they're working on in their countries and in their communities. Mm -hmm. And so we help provide training. We help provide ideas. Hey, something's working in Brazil that might work in the Dominican Republic or something's working in Nepal that might work in Haiti. And so we help share best practice ideas and strategies amongst the different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And we help provide um, accountability for the donors who um, give funding to these small grassroots groups that um, the donors have probably not heard of and might not ever see themselves. So they have comfort and knowledge that Free the Slaves is responsible and helps build up the capacity of those organizations to do the work. So we run programs now in the Dominican Republic and in Haiti and in Ghana and in Nepal and in India. These are all places that have a high prevalence uh, different types of human trafficking, children or women or immigrants or carpets or stone quarries, just depends on where you are. Um, but we tend to look for hot spots and focus our energies there. That's one area that we do. The second area that we do is we try to get, we try to scale up our work by getting international development organizations to do it as well, not just us and small grassroots groups. And the reason that's important is, well, they have boots on the ground 
thousands, tens of thousands of boots on the ground working on health care, on child vaccinations, on food security, on civic participation, on equality for women and girls, on microenterprise development, all these things of the international development assistance world. There are thousands of community mobilizers already working on that in places where slavery still exists. Mm-hmm. And those field workers are either not seeing it because they don't recognize it or they're ignoring it because they don't know what to do about it. Mm. And we want to help them develop eyes and ears and action plans and referral networks so that they can help work on modern slavery while they're also working on whatever else they're also working on. And so that's our second area is to build the movement by replicating it and integrating it in, in not just be a niche human rights cause, but something that is thoroughly integrated into the web of international development. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is we're conveners. We've always thought of ourselves as advocates and conveners. And so that's why we have this conference every year. Um, last year was in Bangkok. This year it's in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we pull that together. We also serve as the secretariat and the co-chair for a coalition in the United States called the Alliance to End Slavery and Trafficking. And we are also on the global coordinating group of the United Nations effort called Alliance 8.7 to meet one of the sustainable development goals that the UN has, which is the end of slavery and child labor by 2030, uh, child labor by 2025, slavery by 2030. So we help pull people together. um, And because we touch, and we've been around for 20 years, actually our 20th birthday is coming up uh, in 2020. So those are the three areas of activities that we do under that main line of focus on helping the individual, but then make sure that you solve the problem and not just their problem, but the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I, um, I learned about Free the Slaves through a book uh, called Blood and Earth by Kevin Bales. Um, and it's all about uh, the, the problem of modern slavery and how, uh, unfortunately, many people think of slavery as a problem of the past or something that happens maybe, you know, here and again in certain circumstances, but people don't realize how prevalent the problem is and how it's actually in every single country. Like the, I realize that there's certain areas that are hot spots, but it's actually something that happens in every single country from um, you know the United States and the whole developed world to the rest of the world as well. And um, I just think that when you're deciding on a, a, a activist, a nonprofit or a, a NGO to support, it's a difficult decision because um, as you probably know, it's like there's different different organizations have different kind of effectiveness levels in terms of like what they actually do to to achieve the mission. And one of the things I respect so much about Free the Slaves is when people donate to Free the Slaves, they know that they're going to get tangible results. And it's like I see, and I think a lot of people see modern slavery as one of the most egregious problems in the world currently. And it's easy to fall into despair or hopelessness or nihilism. Um, and when there's organizations like you guys, it helps to kind of combat that because at the very least, you can get involved, donate, spread the word, spread awareness, support you on some level, and you are then part of uh, fighting, fighting the good fight, kind of like dispelling the darkness around the world. I think that's so important. Thank you. You know, one of our board members is a a professor of social movements at uh, Harvard University at the Kennedy School, and he teaches a grad class, grad school class. Um, I've had the good fortune to be a guest lecturer in his class for a few years, and these are 
really top flight like activists that are going to change the world. And he looks at them and tells them, where will you be in the history books of the future uh, that are being written about today? Mm-hmm. Are you going to are you going to be in the index of those history books? Are you are they going to make are they gonna write books about you? Are you going to be part of a movement that actually accomplished something historic? And that's why Free the Slaves is not afraid of the S word. So, you know, we we always hear there's a little um, disconnect sometimes when we use the word slavery, modern slavery, because people hear that word and have to unlearn what they learned in like second grade, um, that slavery happened in the past and it was about the shipment of people from Africa to America at, when it was actually much broader than that and that it was ended 150 years ago, that Lincoln freed the slaves. Well, what happened was that slavery was outlawed. It wasn't ended. So it was uh, the slaves at the time who were kept in chattel slavery were liberated, but they were quickly re-enslaved by sharecropping and Jim Crow and other systems of exploitation, even inside the United States. And new forms of slavery have taken root in terms of forced labor and bonded labor and with migration and the movement of manufacturing from, say, Europe and the U.S. to lesser developed countries where labor laws are not so well enforced or aren't very strong, you see that slavery has made a global comeback in modern forms. And people come to the U.S. um, thinking that they will be au pairs or gardeners or vegetable pickers and find themselves trapped in systems of debt and discrimination that are modern slavery. And many are coming on airplanes, on sponsored visas legally into the U.S. Um, uh, uh, for, for work here. And uh, one of our um, uh, a co-author that had written another book with Kevin um, called The Slave Next Door said the, um, that the jumbo jet is the slave ship of modern times. And so people, it, 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 people are moving all around the world, even inside countries, millions of people are on the move from rural areas to urban megacities and look for a better life and a better work opportunities. Mm-hmm. And people are moving from lesser developed economies to more developed economies, also either looking to change the trajectory of their life and possibly uh, or send remittances back home so, or both. And so this is a largely unregulated industry, and there are human traffickers who pose as legitimate labor recruiters. Mm -hmm. And when they get you away from your family, your village, your documents, your language, your money, your legal system, then the hammer drops. And now you realize this is slavery, and every day – you're deeper in debt. Oh, you brought your own bedroll. No, you must rent one from us. Oh, you brought your own tools. No, you must rent them from us. Oh, you want to go home. No, we have your documents. You can't even leave. And that's what makes it slavery is they control your movement and they control your ability to walk away. And so now it's forced labor without pay and for nothing except just a subsistence to be kept alive. And you cannot leave. And that's one of the big mechanisms that's causing this resurgence of slavery around the world today. And I'm glad you saw that Blood and Earth book because um, there is a connection 
between modern slavery and environmentally destructive practices because mm-hmm. people who don't care about human rights certainly don't care about the planet either. And so uh, and the economics of it are such that uh, you, you couldn't afford to clear cut the Amazon if you had to pay people to do it. And you couldn't afford to just bottom troll the oceans for pet food if you had to pay your deckhands to do it. So slavery finds its way into enabling these environmentally destructive practices that might not exist because the economics wouldn't work if you actually had to pay the workers to to do the work. Mm -hmm. So there's a connection between the two. Yeah, one of yeah. the um, more disturbing things as I've done more research about the problem is um, you see that <clears throat> the sophistication of the traffickers is, uh, has, has increased over time. Um, it, it's, it's this unfortunate thing that, um, you know, it seems like for whatever reason, uh, some, some people have a sense of morality and others just don't. And when you don't have a sense of, of any sort of, um, there, there's no sense of like, you know, uh, right or wrong or any sort of moral compass, then you'll do whatever it takes to achieve your goals. So thus, the systems of entrapping people seem to be becoming more and more sophisticated. And unfortunately, like just as uh, folks like yourselves and organizations like Free the Slaves network with other folks who are battling the problem, I think there's also, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's probably also coordination and like, quote unquote, best practices being exchanged by those who uh, are actually uh, responsible for the problem in creating the networks of human trafficking. Yes, this is a, um, uh, it, it's a, you know, an adaptation. <laughs> um, one side adapts, another side adapts, and we tend to learn um, what's going on from um, people who come out of slavery and help tell us um, new ideas and new ways that people are being tricked and trapped. And I, I guess maybe I do want to say one thing because I maybe sometimes there's an assumption that most modern slavery is sex slavery, which it is not. Actually, most is labor slavery, as we're mentioning on boats or in logging camps or at mines or on palm oil plantations, um, sewing factories and, and, and whatnot. And it's actually about 21 million people is the most recent estimate in forced labor situations like that, about 4 million in sex slavery, and about 15 million in forced marriage slavery. Mm. This isn't just arranged marriages. Um, this is girls sold off to pay debts by their parents. Um, so this is definitely transactional and um, definitely forced. And not just cultural or religious, it, it's across um, uh, the full spectrum. So that brings your number to about 40 million uh, around the world, and it's probably much higher than that, but that's the best estimate we have at the moment, and that comes yeah. from the United Nations and um, civil society groups. And the um, some of that, about 20% of that, or 20 to 25% of that is people in, uh, who are outside their country of origin. Mm-hmm. So that's the migration-related trafficking that I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. And so in, especially when you actually look sorry, at the sex... I, sorry to interrupt you. You can keep talking. I just have to let my cat in because she's meowing. No worries. <laughs> it's going to be on the recording. So please keep talking. I'll be right back. No, no problem. So when you um, think about the... Um, that's probably the highest value, um, how do we say, lowest investment versus highest value sector um, in 
forced labor and modern slavery. And that's often controlled by transnational human trafficking rings when you're talking about the movement of people across borders for sex slavery. And they will threaten, say, your sister back home or your cousin back home if you make trouble for us here. And they will know what the law is. I think the someone at the State Department said just a, a few weeks ago at a conference that you have a better chance of being hit by lightning than charged with modern slavery acts uh, offenses if you're a human trafficker. It's so the laws are not terribly well enforced, and there's not a, enough enforcement, and it's very spotty. And in many places, the um, police are seen as a malevolent force, not exactly people you come to for help. Yeah. And so um, there's certain levels of corruption and bribery. And when you're in the sex slavery sector, um, in that business, you generate revenue that does corrupt the system. And so you pay off police. You don't operate brothels anywhere in the world without the police knowing what's going on. And yeah. so, um, so they, this undermines the rule of law in those places. Yeah. Now, the, the, the thing that we try to talk about when it comes to enforcement and improving techniques for enforcement is for the governments of countries to not just think about the individual or the community, but to think about their entire economy as a potential victim. Just a few weeks ago, the U.S. government banned the import of diamonds from Zimbabwe because they're tainted. The industry is tainted with forced and child labor. Uh, I think it was two, three weeks ago, they just banned the importation of all tobacco from Malawi. It's a huge part of Malawi's crop. And now what we hear, I I don't have an official word, but the discussion is what about chocolate, cocoa, from uh, Ivory Coast, where most of it comes from. Mm -hmm. And so your entire country could become a victim. Your your leading cash crop could be embargoed from the number one market in the world if you don't fix this problem inside your own supply chain and apply the laws that already exist by international treaty obligation and in almost all cases by your own local laws, your own statutes in your own country. So we're trying to help um, adapt to ratchet up the pressure on governments to enforce the laws by, through advocacy, helping to work on getting um, uh, restrictions on the global movement of commodities that are tainted by uh, human trafficking. Um, My organization and many of us in anti-trafficking don't believe a blanket embargo of a whole country's tobacco crop is actually the best way to get at the bad actors because you're hurting the whole country's um, economy, including the good companies. But targeted um, actions that embargo individual companies or shipments that are known to be tainted by slavery is a great way to get the attention of law enforcement and regulators and government officials in places where the problem's worse. So we're trying to adapt using advocacy as well as community action and rule of law and pushing from different directions. That's our kind of adaptation.
This station is conducting a test of the collective Satori trigger system. This is only a test. The collective Satori trigger system is made possible by a grant from the Mithraic Mystery and Sophianic Wisdom Foundation and by listeners like you. When Suzuki was asked what is it like to have Satori, he said it's just like ordinary everyday experience except about two inches off the ground. And so we say in our own songs, walking on air, never a care, something is making me sing, tra-la-la-la, tra-la-la-la, like a little bird in spring. <laughs> about um, 40 million, 21 million in labor, 4 million in sex slavery, and 15 million in forced marriage. And how, how do you guys go about, um, it, it seems like such a thorny issue to when you know that there's a certain industry that's tainted with, with uh, goods derived from slavery, but there's other companies that are maybe doing the right thing or doing it ethically. How do you go about kind of like... Uh, dividing, like, seeing who actually the bad actors are, and are, is there any kind of shenanigans in terms of perhaps a diamond is a blood diamond that was mined in Zimbabwe, but it might be passed through a few other players and kind of cleaned, so to speak, and then uh, transferred on the global market that way? Um, you, you've been doing some reading. You read a lot, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> it's true. And, you know, surgical instruments that uh, get repackaged in other countries, so therefore they become, you know, they might be made in Pakistan but then they're, or Sri Lanka, but then they get repackaged, um, um, say, uh, in Malaysia or in Thailand. And so the actual country of origin is not quite so clear because of international trade rules about how much value is added along the value chain. So it is a very, very complicated problem. Um, what, what civil society groups can do 
is help be the eyes and ears on the ground so that we we deal with this at a systemic level and not um, and help governments realize they have to start enforcing their own laws um, and fix the problem sector by sector. You know, we can't go and kick down 40 million doors and rescue people individually one at a time. Right. Um, so we can't actually cleanse the world's economy of all slavery-tainted products one television set at a time um, or one um, ring or a cell phone at a time. We need to think about working um, at a larger scale, a systemic scale. And by getting what we also um, are working on the advocacy level with something that's called um, duty of vigilance or corporate due gil- human rights, mandatory corporate human rights due diligence, which means you have to do more than issue a corporate social responsibility report every year saying, we looked and didn't find anything, or we looked and we're going to help build some schools here and there. You actually have to investigate your product supply chain all the way down to the raw commodity. Like uh, in the clothing industry, you could call this dirt to shirt, all the way down to the cotton, all the way down to the raw minerals. And ensure that your product isn't being tainted through that entire product supply chain and put downward pressure all the way to the raw commodities and require companies as a a part of their business license or their annual filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission or regulators in Europe or create accounting standards in Europe, which is working on this, to say you have you have a duty of vigilance to look at this and if you find it, to fix it. Mm-hmm. And then now you're mobilizing business to help take care of the problem. Mm-hmm. Instead of it feeling like a regulatory burden, it's, it, in, it um, motivates business to want to do this because their customers certainly want this. Yeah. That nobody wants to wear a slavery-tainted shirt and nobody wants to have a cell phone or a computer with like made by child slaves stamped on it um, or can't be sure it's not made by child slaves stamped on it. So eventually you can follow models that have worked to some extent or not other extents. When you think about dolphin safe tuna or um, uh, for steward council, there are certification um, organizations that uh, do very good jobs with rugs and with fashion. And there's a, a kind of a responsible ethical fashion industry that's popping up to try to counter the fast fashion trends where you find a lot of forced labor. So there, there are market forces that in play. And if you can help, work with the regulatory framework so that you level the playing field so that the responsible companies feel that um, the uh, the bad actors are actually paying a price, um, then you'll start to see sec- the business community take care of it as well as the human rights world work at it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's brilliant. Anytime you can create like an economic incentive uh, like align the, the free market with your mission, I think that's a really fantastic way of achieving real results. Um, unfortunately, it's just the world we live in that people are well, yeah. by the bottom well, but line. You know, yeah, and what we do, I mean, as civil society organizations, our job is to make sure that people aren't complicit by making sure that they're aware that it could be um, in your clothing or in your food or in your electronics or and or in your jewelry. And because we believe, at least to a large extent, um, that people won't be um, complicit uh, and they won't, if they don't want to be complicit, they won't be complacent. 
shall I say. Once you learn, you can't unlearn. And then you might take whatever steps you can now, which would be buy local, buy fair trade, um, buy from sites that um, there's a place that Free the Slaves has um, called donegood.co, which are products that are screened for environmental um, responsibility as well as for human rights uh, responsibility. So there are places that you can you can find this now. Uh, in the end, you shouldn't have to do that work. I mean, you shouldn't have to go with a barcode scanner and should I get this brand of cereal or that brand of cereal or this TV or that? Um, you, you shouldn't have to make those choices. But for the moment, you do what you can. And so we help to build that awareness while we're also doing the field work to help push at it from the international development side. When uh, So as a consumer, when you see something is labeled fair trade, can you be pretty confident that that is not tainted by slavery? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, there's different levels of standards and different organizations um, have different levels of standards. But Fair Trade USA and Fair Trade, I think, Global, they look at that level of um, child labor and forced labor in products, uh, as well as environmental stewardship, I think, in many cases. So a lot of coffee companies, a lot of some of the chocolate companies have started doing that. Yeah. And they're learning that it's actually when you start doing the right thing, it actually becomes a smart thing. It actually becomes, you know, mar there's marketing value in yes. actually being able to tell the people who might make a decision between one product or the other that, hey, listen, our product is going to make you feel good and does, does, doesn't just taste good or look good. Um, yeah. So um, there's there's some value in that too. Yeah, I think like uh, you use the example of the dolphin safe tuna. I think I, I would say close to 100% of consumers, if they look at two cans of tuna and one says dolphin safe and the other doesn't, they're going to go with the dolphin safe one, you know, even if it's 25 yeah. cents more or whatever. So I'm just wondering, is there anything in the works to create like, you know, on products, I always shop at natural food stores. So each product has like all these different stamps on it, right? It's like gluten free, <laughs> fair trade, uh, you know, uh, cruelty Urban free. footprint. Animal testing free. Is there anything in the works for uh, slavery free, like having some sort of like um, uh, brand that can be stamped on products uh, universally and so people can recognize instantaneously while they're shopping? Yes, there are groups. There are groups that do that. Good Weave is one. Um, they started out as the rug mark campaign in India for Indian rugs, and now they're moving into fashion and furniture. Okay. And so there are different um, certification standards that that are working that way. Um, it's just that um, it's so insidious. You know, it's like there's, there's with this many tens of millions of people. Uh, generating $150 billion in illicit profits every year for traffickers, you can see how it's just got tentacles. And when you think that it's not just in the um, – and it's not concentrated, shall we say, in final assembly factories. Like, So you're, you don't have to worry about – uh, at least so far as I know, that your Jeep or your Chevy has, is, is at the assembly plant ha, has been tainted by slavery on the assembly line. Um, but when you think about the rubber from the plantations in Liberia or you for the tires or you think about the high conductivity metals that are in the airbag actuators circuitry that come from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, then you start realizing, wow, this is way down the product supply chain. And if you're Ford or Chevy and you're making a car that has 75,000 parts in it or whatever, when it's done, you can imagine that's a pretty complex um, supply chain that they're managing. So it will take time. 
Um, and the, the more complex the product, the harder it is to certify that none of those thousands of components in it um, uh, all the way down. So, But when it comes to just clothing and shirts, um, fabric, um, so um, th- that's where it's a little easier. And there are many companies that sell um, uh, clothing that's already certified um, th- as being uh, modern slavery-free. Mm-hmm. Just have to look around. Right. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't drop a lot of names here and all of that. Or we don't, we don't do the name and shame kind of thing. For sure. But if you just click around, we we can tell you go to donegood.co, and they have a web, they have a page for free the slaves, a fashion page, okay. um, for fashion and accessories. And so there's actually something called Shop for Good Sunday. So you know there's Giving Tuesday right after Thanksgiving. Well, the Sunday between Thanksgiving and Giving Tuesday, that holiday weekend, um, uh, Done Good runs a Shop for Good Sunday, and Free the Slaves has a page on that campaign. And so that's one place you can go to look for clothing and accessories uh, and jewelry, I believe, um, that has been certified both environmental and uh, human la- uh, human trafficking, uh, res- socially responsible. I was also reading on your website that um, if individual consumers want to buy products or invest in companies uh, that they know are not tainted by slavery, there's a website, uh, knowthechain.org, and you can check uh, corporate compliance with, it says, California's groundbreaking law that requires major companies to investigate their supply chains and disclose what they're doing about slavery. Yes. And I mean, companies have there's a mixed record on these ideas of modern slavery acts and transparency. Mm -hmm. And the California law was passed 10 years ago. It was a groundbreaking law when it passed. Britain just passed a similar uh, law three years ago. And there's talk about doing this in the U.S. nationwide. But the California law requires any company that does any business in California, even one stick of gum, um, and has one hundred million dollars of global not profits, actual revenue, uh, and is registered in California as either a retailer or a manufacturer. So those are the rules. So that's pretty much all the big box stores, all the national uh, chains all qualify for that. So it's kind of like a national law because of how big the California economy is. Mm -hmm. They are required to actually um, disclose to the public what they're doing about um, investigating and remediating any uh, modern slavery in their product supply chains. Now, to comply with that law, all they have to do is say, we're not doing anything. (laughs) They're not required to fix it. They're just required to disclose it. And they can't – enforcement has been very spotty. Um, Mm. So only the California attorney general can bring a case against a company. And then it's not for the slavery in their product. It's only for the fact that they didn't put uh, a paragraph on their website. So so this is the difference between um, transparency law and uh, accountability and liability and due diligence, the higher level of standard. Now, this higher level level of standard, the French have passed last year. The Dutch have passed also. The Germans are considering it. So that is the new level, this mandatory human rights due diligence. You have to go out and look for it and do something about it if you find it. Not that you just have to disclose whether or not we've done anything about it. Um, So transparency is a necessary step bringing 
the corporate culture along that continuum from transparency to accountability to liability. And the big thing for us is what's known as a private cause of action so that the workers themselves can actually sue companies for forced labor uh, and get damages and, and not just lost wages, but actually damages for harm in the, in the in, uh, kind of punitive damages for the harm that's been caused and not just the wages that were stolen. So that level of um, and, and third party liability. So a hotel could be sued for sex slavery that it allowed to happen on its premises for example. Okay. Um, so you have this kind of the legal landscape is definitely evolving. So, you know, when we started out 20 years ago at Free the Slaves, and, and I actually knew some of the people, as I said, I knew one of the founders. So I've, I've been here 10 years, but I know I go back to the kitchen cabinet, shall I say, of Free yeah. the Slaves 20 <laughs> years ago. Um, and should we have the logo look like this? Should it be orange? Should it go? What should it be? So yeah. I helped with some <laughs> of those decisions because this is a good friend of mine. And so, you know, nobody knew this happened. Nobody knew this was really going on. And then a lot of the crime procedural movies and the Liam Neeson movies and a lot of um, films got you thinking that this was about kidnapping of Los Angeles, you know, white girls um, who are on tour in France and being brought to the Middle East, um, that this isn't actually a problem that affects people all over the world, even in countries, and that this is uh, an, an issue that affects uh, labor as well as sex and children and marriage and, and even affects forced soldiering is actually a form of uh, modern slavery child soldiering as well yeah. children that are conscripted to for to fight with rebel uh, organizations uh, in different parts of the world and um, this even is a national security problem now I mean um, ISIS um, was using sex slavery to reward to recruit and to reward fighters and so you you can see this level of um, um, integration into all sorts of you know nefarious military and exploitative activities um, it's uh, it's not a niche problem it affects the entire economy and uh, I like to you know I, I talked earlier about international development how, how those organizations should be getting involved in this. And I use the example of building a school in a village. Um, you get a grant, say, from United States Agency for International Development to build a school in a rural village in a developing country. First thing you do, you show up. How many school-aged children are there? How big a school am I supposed to build? So you do your census. Let's say it's 100. Five months later, you've built your school. You've hired your teachers. You've trained them. There's a big celebration and ribbon-cutting day, and the children are in their desks, and 20 desks are empty because mm. those children are in the mine or the palm oil plantation mm. or out on fishing boats or at the somewhere else, cocoa harvesting. Mm -hmm. And so if you had integrated – an anti-trafficking program while you were doing your school building program, you'd be sure that you'd reach all the children in the village. Mm -hmm. And that's true for all of those international development programs for uh, vaccinating children, for developing food security and women's equality and microenterprise development. Um, for, for all these international aid organizations, uh, getting rid of human trafficking as a barrier to reaching everyone helps you improve your reach of your own existing program. So it's the smart thing to do.
not just the right thing to do, because you're actually able to do two goods at once. And, and I'll leave you this one more economic thing. If, if, 150, if, if we were to liberate everyone today, $150 billion a year in illicit profits go from the traffickers to the poor people who are enslaved. That's a huge amount of international investment. Imagine the economic multiplication effect of that money in the hands of people um, building and repairing their houses, sending their kids to school, buying your school uniforms and books, starting small businesses. A huge amount of foreign aid um, that's actually just kind of getting skimmed right now by the human traffickers. So it's, again, an economic argument. If, if you want to put $150 billion of international investment in the hands of people who need it, get rid of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, I want to go back to that uh, the four step model in that really good video that I recommend my listeners to check out on your homepage. Uh, so the first step is uh, investigate and identify, and we've kind of talked a little bit about that. The second step provide technical training and financial support, and uh, that just reminded me of what you just said. Uh, you know, with that amount of money that would. Uh, be redirected into um, the hands of those who actually earned it. Um, and there's work done to create, uh, I forget the exact term, it was like community banks or saving clubs or something like that, where folks... Uh, yeah, let me get into that. So that second step is that we help provide, uh, like co-implementing the programs with the community groups. We're helping to find money from the global north and move it to the global south to help on the front lines in villages. But then also we help people bond together to form savings clubs so that the one of the second – migration is a huge cause of uh, slavery today. The, the other is debt. People – fall into debt because some kind of crisis has befallen them. And this could be a climate-related crop failure. It could be an earthquake or a a cyclone or typhoon or hurricane. It could be a a road accident or a medical emergency, say, at childbirth. Something's gone wrong and people have to borrow from anyone who will lend it to them on any terms. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of exploitative farmers, plantation owners, mine owners, and intermediaries who will lend you money if you agree to work it off. Mm. And when you end up working it off and you show up to work it off, you find out you're trapped in debt bondage slavery. And so what we help do, uh, people do is form their own savings clubs, particularly the women of a, of a community, so that it can help them start microenterprises um, and borrow from one another when they need a little bit of seed capital or, let's say, to buy or repair a sewing machine or for welders or for small businesses uh, to repair or to buy a motorcycle for a delivery service. So these are not huge investments, but um, by people pooling their money and sharing amongst themselves, when crisis strikes, they can borrow from the community pot. Mm-hmm. And so we help uh, seed those savings associations and then people and train people how to do the bookkeeping and how to keep the money secure and um, how to uh, make the economics of freedom work for them. So that's one of those steps. Cool. Yeah, I um, I actually went to grad school for uh, refugees and forced migration. It was the program was international social development. And one of the things talked about a lot was um, 
uh, the the problem of power brokers in situations where people are vulnerable. So obviously we were focusing on the refugees and also internally displaced people, um, how folks often when they enter a refugee camp, their documentation is taken from them. And then um, so the per- their <laughs> personal agency is compromised. So then, for example, like human beings are naturally um, innovative and naturally entrepreneurial and people want to support themselves, obviously. So, you know, folks try to create these little uh, small businesses even within camps, but especially for women and children, they have to do it through these power brokers, these intermediaries, which obviously then um, can be controlled, manipulated, or just straight up abused by these factors. So what I really love, uh, the microfinancing that you mentioned, microloans and uh, the the what is it called? Community savings? Community yes. Community savings and loan. Yeah. 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 I think that's so powerful. And um, yeah, I think that's really, really hopeful. And if you look on uh, where we work, if you look at some of the programs, the couple of programs in the Congo um, have an example of that where we filmed and kind of explains how that works. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. That's on your website? It's on the website. Down near the bottom, there's a global map and you click Africa, click uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo, and on that page you'll see some videos. One of them is called The Economics of Freedom, and that's a video exactly about the savings and loan clubs that we started there in the Kivu's provinces of the DRC. Okay, awesome. Um, how many uh, human traffickers have actually been convicted and arrested uh, due to the work of Free the Slaves? Oh, I have what's our number now? I'm sorry, it keeps it's not a lot, I'm sorry to say. I mean we've we've crossed about I've got my little uh crib sheet here, which is our fact sheet that's on the uh, website. Oh cool. It's I think it's more than three hundred now. Okay. I know we've we've liberated about fourteen thousand people and um and again we've been working at pilot scale in these small programs. Um this is why we believe it's so important to scale up through international development and help train people how to do the work mm-hmm. but um there's the one problem with um prosecution under trafficking laws is sometimes particularly in sex slavery you will find that a prosecutor says it's easier to just use a country's prostitution laws than it is to use their human trafficking laws, just mm-hmm. the elements of the crime and the provability of the crime. Mm-hmm. And so so it's a little difficult on a global picture to know how many people have been prosecuted um, under all statutes as opposed to just their trafficking statutes. Okay. And so there's better data that's needed there. But I know that our groups have helped bring more than 300 people um, uh, again, a drop in the bucket, unfortunately, compared to what might be four, uh, uh, four million or so, is Kevin Bales's estimate. He was one of our co-founders, and he wrote that book, Blood and Earth. And uh, there has been a lot of attention now that uh, um, Dr. Bales is focused now. He's looking a lot more at who are the perpetrators. There's another scholar, um, Austin Choi Fitzpatrick. No relation, but he's also from um, Free the Slaves from back in the day, and he's a professor now um, in San Diego, and he's written an amazing book called What Traffickers Think, and his his area of scholarship now and specialty is understanding the mind of people who are slaveholders and traffickers Mm -hmm. and how do they respond when their power is challenged and what is the power dynamics between them and the victims and their victims and it's much more complicated than of course it might appear in the movies Um, in some cases especially say in where the problem is worst 
in the world, which is in India, and a lot of the problem is caste-based, where mm. the Dalit caste, even though the caste system has technically been made illegal, it is still a social reality. Mm. And so there's, um, there's definitely these relationships um, between the, the brick kiln owners, for example, and the stone quarry owners and the people who they enslave to work in them and whether they even think of it as enslavement or whether they think of it as I'm just providing work for people who need it. Mm. And there's, there's this relationship, say, in, in Africa and Ghana on Lake Volta where children are sent by their parents in exchange for the promise of some remittances to go work on fishing boats and where more often than not they are definitely either beaten and kept in conditions of slavery. Mm-hmm. But the, what you hear from some of those traffickers is, well, we're teaching them to fish. This is an apprenticeship. It's not trafficking. Mm-hmm. And so – the, the kind of cultural as well as the psychological dynamics, and then how do people react when that power structure is um, is addressed or toppled, or you try to get police enforcement inside those power structures? Mm-hmm. So um, we're we're very keen to understand the social dynamics uh, because that's part of the reason this pro- the, this uh, human rights abuse exists, mm-hmm. and it's not so easy to uproot. Um, one of history's longest-running crime sprees when it um, when you um, understand that there's social components to it as well and denialism that happens. Yeah, so yeah. so our this is why we work with local staff exclusively because this is not a problem we can hope to parachute in and understand all of the nuances of that cultural dynamic in in various uh, remote locations and and um, language uh, dialects and so um, so um, 300 that, sorry that's a long answer to the number of, of 300 we love um, long answers here <laughs> we <laughs> this is the long read section and so um, so we it's a it's a complex problem I mean it may appear on the surface you know that yes there's these are bad actors and they need to pay a price but if you're going to try to affect the systems and not just have someone take their place as an enslaver then you have to also think about the dynamics of what's going on yeah i think uh one of the issues that sometimes is overlooked is um i did quite a bit of research uh in my grad school program about uh specifically mines oftentimes uh, mines specifically owned uh north american companies that operate in the global south And uh, unfortunately, there's still a lot of institutional racism and classism and this idea that folks are lucky to have a job, you know, these types of of things. And um, I just wonder, uh, where do we start fighting that in terms of educating, you know, um, the the board of massive mining corporations and stuff and and having folks realize that, you know, uh, people may, might have different standards of living around the world, but there are, is a basic – there is basic human rights. And also everybody wants a nice life. You know, this idea that like, well, people are used to living on a dollar a day, so it's no big deal. I think that's a really dangerous fallacy. Um, and also uh, it's, it's, like I said, institutional classes and this idea that, you know, um, that's just kind of how the world works and – you know, I'm a job creator and they're lucky to have yeah. this job. Well, you know, as we start to wrap up, uh, let me just say this. Um, there was a time 
when people considered slavery to be morally acceptable and economically necessary, that it was baked in to the way the world worked, and this was just how life is. Mm -hmm. And uh, fortunately, our predecessors in the abolition movement were successful against all odds in tackling those long-held beliefs. And nobody today argues that slavery is a good thing. Now, they might not say this is modern slavery. They might say this is just maybe harsh working conditions. Um, but when we know it is modern slavery and it reaches the level of exploitation that qualifies under the elements of a crime uh, by local law and by international treaties, then the education of those individuals is the way to go. Um, so uh, we're hopeful as the modern abolition movement, and this is why Free the Slaves continues to use the word slavery, because we see this as continuing the work that was started 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. And our job is to finish that job. It's to make good on that promise of outlawing slavery and to make sure that it is actually eradicated. And it's going to be just as challenging a fight as it was 150 years ago to get slavery outlawed and to get that mindset changed. But we think the public is on our side in that regards. Um, the, um, the, the large consuming uh, countries right now in the global economy, people don't want slavery tainted goods. If you ask them, do you want to wear this shirt or that shirt? Mm -hmm. the, people will clearly choose the, the, the socially responsible option if they're given an A and a B choice and it's not going to break the, the bank. And it's not going to break the bank because, yeah, $150 billion a year is a lot of illicit profits, but the global economy is like $80 trillion a year. It's not going to break the bank to get rid of this illicit industry that's scattered throughout a bunch of different, largely primary commodity production systems and mm -hmm. cotton and gold and diamonds and chocolate and those sorts of things. Yeah. And so um, we're hopeful that we will make good on that promise uh, mm -hmm. of, of, say, the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution or the British outlawing the slave trade and, uh, and of the revolts, the rebellions that happened in Haiti and, and elsewhere, mm -hmm. that we can help carry on in that tradition. And people, when I think they learn that they're part of something bigger, that they're part of something historic, that they're part of something that's multi-generational and has gone on, but that there's a new angle to it, that there's something fresh and different about it today, I think they'll join. They'll join the fight. Totally. And we can make history, and we're going to win this one. Yeah. Uh, one final question for you before I let you go, and I want to thank you again for your time. Um, sure. I'd be remiss not to at least ask you this question. Uh, uh oh. <laughs> Um, I'm a journalist. Now I know when I when I ask, I start yeah, up like that. Yeah. Okay, right. <laughs> and uh, of course, you know, you 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 can say whatever you'd like to say about this. No, okay. But I think it's an important right. issue in light of especially um, recent events. What what do you think is being done or or can be done in terms of? Um, unfortunately, again, this is uh, mostly I think relating to the sex slavery piece. But um, when you have uh, actual like governmental agencies participating in trafficking for you know the use of sexual blackmail operations and stuff like that. Um, is there anything being done to shed light on that issue? Um, I'm not familiar with the case you might be talking about, and I don't think we need to get in into those details. But 
um, the uh, governments using sex slavery as a means of coercion um, or co-option sounds like tradecraft. Um, uh, you know, uh, well, first off, that's illegal violating human rights treaties by governmental actors or their subcontractors um, or their agents or, or affiliates is just plain out illegal. Mm-hmm. So that just needs to be stopped under law, period. It's illegal and it's against the law. So that needs to stop. Um, when it comes to whether governments are not doing enough, which no government is doing enough, mm-hmm. then we believe the answer and, and uh, the answer is a whole of government approach so that there's no one place in a government agency or a slavery czar, say we say that directs all of government, that you have decisions being made at, say, in the U.S., at the Justice Department and at the FBI and at the State Department and at the Labor Department and at Health and Human Services and at the Department of Education and an and an and. Mm-hmm. And so um, having a whole of government approach means that the different um, I want you to say this, the different resources, the different levels of expertise, the different web of, of interlocking services and policies comes to play so that if there is anything nefarious that happens in any one agency, it isn't the whole uh, web that is tainted by it, but that there are other parts of a government institution that continue um, to function. And if um, that's happening, then the one that's in charge of prosecution should prosecute it. So, uh, and I know people in the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit um, at the Justice Department and former FBI agents who now work in um, at nonprofits uh, inside this. And um, they'll just say uh, three simple words, lock them up. Cool. Yeah, and I I do think that it's uh, one of the positive effects of we have such a globally intertwined economy now that uh, you know the pe- people can really hold governments accountable in so many different ways. Uh, and and yeah, I just think um, like you said, the economic incentive uh, to really create the change is is very powerful. And I just um, so appreciative of the work you guys are doing, and it really like yeah. you know it's it's an an honor to be able to donate to you guys and to also raise awareness about what you're doing, get the word out. Um, so how can my listeners support Free the Slaves? Freetheslaves.net. Um, or you could just go to Facebook um, slash Free the Slaves. Um, and if you're, if you ever do uh, donate your birthday kind of campaign, uh, many people do things that way. Um, or if you go to our take action site on our website, freetheslaves.net, freetheslaves.net. I'll say it three times, freetheslaves.net, <laughs> net, 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 net. And so, um, you'll see that there are films, there are books, there are handouts, there are discussion papers. So, um, have a brown bag at lunch. Um, uh, work with your kids on class projects. It's not appropriate maybe for fifth grade, for, for high school certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and eighth grade, we, I deal with a lot of eighth grade classes. And um, so it's good for school papers. It's good to, say, have your church or synagogue, um, if they're going to adopt a charity, adopt Free the Slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also you can just do, if you're interested in running any kind of crowdfunding, crowd platform thing, there have been people who do that on either Razoo or other crowdfunding platforms with Free the Slaves as a beneficiary. Um, and so there's lots of ways. Um, the three things we ask you to do is to spread the word and then contribute 
because uh, awareness without action doesn't accomplish a lot. Um, and then the third thing is don't be complicit or complacent. So do what you can with your own investments as well, socially responsible funds, um, not necessarily the high growth ones. And if you happen to work for a company um, and you do uh, you control their pension fund or you control, uh, say, you work for a school district and you buy all their paper or their pencils, um, ask your suppliers. Now, they may not be able to tell you if the things you're buying are uh, certified slavery free, but if people start asking, it starts becoming a selling point. And believe me, the marketers on the other side of the phone will start reporting, people are starting to ask me. And that will just start the conversation. So if you're in the procurement business or if you're in the investment business, um, either for yourself or some business or for, say, your church or synagogue um, or school district or pension fund or union, then look for socially responsible uh, investments. So um, spread the word, contribute, and don't be complacent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, just to, to kind of wrap things up, uh, this is a fight that can be won and I believe will be won. I do believe that uh, modern slavery will be abolished. So, um, you know, it's just a matter of, of taking the right steps. So uh, thank, right. you, thank you again so much, Terry. Happy to help. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Bye now. Bye.